Welcome to the Sacred Flame Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Norby. Here, gathered around the fire, we explore our ancestral story worlds. Some call them myths and mythology, but I think they're more than that. Our ancient stories are the foundation narratives that can help guide us in life, reinvigorate the modern world, and bring us back to a place of balance. Modern society needs an archaic revival, a new force that's sourced from the old forgotten knowledge that was once transmitted in living stories in sacred settings. We gather by the sacred flame and revive the old ways of creating community in the world by listening to nature, our inner flame, and reestablishing the ties that let us realize that we're connected with everything that exists. Our ancestors knew that cultivating the right relationships with the other than human beings in the world is the key to living a good life. In this podcast, I'm retelling and reconnecting the Nordic story world with our reality and offering my thoughts on how you can use these stories to reflect on what it means to exist in the modern world. As the brilliant bohemian composer Gustav Mahler once said, tradition is nurturing the flame, not worshiping the ashes. Thank you for tuning in. Episode 3, Walking with the Land Spirits. Once upon a time, three creative spirits traversed the lands. Their names were Odin, Hainir, and Loki. They wandered far and wide, through the forests, through the marshes, across the plains and into the mountains in the north. One day they came through a pass and descended into a large green valley with birch, pine, and spruce scattered in clusters. They noticed that the valley was populated by large herds of pasture animals cattle, sheep, and goats. As the sun was setting, they decided to make camp and catch one of the grazing animals so that they could eat. They butchered the animal and built a turf oven to roast it in. Some time went by and Odin tested the meat to see if it was fully cooked, but to his amazement, it was still completely raw and cold. The three creators discussed this among each other and decided to see if letting it cook for longer would help. Next time it was Hainia who tested the meat. He found that it was still cold and raw. They decided to fire up the oven even hotter and give the meat some more time to stew. Then Loki tested the meat and found, like his fellows before, that it was still cold and raw. They began discussing loudly amongst each other why the meat wasn't cooking, and as they were sitting there with their rumbling stomachs, they heard what sounded like a storm wind. A giant eagle landed in the top of a tall spruce near them and said to them, The meat isn't cooking because this animal belongs to me. I'm using my skills to prevent the fire from heating your dinner. These herds that you see across the valley are all mine. And you've stolen this animal from me. Odin jumped to his feet and said, Well, if we've stolen from you, it was surely an accident. We 
did not know that these animals belonged to you. What can we do to make this right? The eagle answered, I'll take my share of the meat, and then you can have the rest. They agreed to this, and soon thereafter, the meat was fully cooked. The smell of the roasted meat filled the camp, and the three creators began smacking their lips in anticipation. Then Loki pulled the meat out of the oven, and just as he was about to partition it, the eagle dropped down from the tree and swallowed all the best pieces of meat on the animal. In anger, Loki grabbed his walking stick and lashed at the eagle. The eagle grasped the stick in his claws and quickly ascended far into the sky. He flew over the trees, and as Loki's feet were dangling below him and hitting the treetops, he shouted, Please, great eagle, let me down. I will do anything for you to put me safely down on the ground. The eagle said, Anything? Yes, anything, I promise. Okay, then. I will put you back down on one condition. When you return to the spirit homes, I demand that you ensure that I can have a meeting with Idun. Loki swore that he would comply with this wish, and the eagle then put him down again. The three creators returned from their journeys, and things were quiet for a while. Now one day, Loki saw Idun in the grove with her apples. He walked over to her and said, These apples are beautiful, but did you know that I have seen some that are even more wonderful out there in the woods? Idun said that she would be interested in seeing them. Loki then said, of course, I can show you where they are. They grow in a grove in the middle of the forest. The two of them went out to the grove and came to a little clearing between the trees. But as soon as they stepped into that clearing, a shadow blocked out the sun, and the mighty eagle swooped down and grabbed Idun and flew off. Not long after Idun's disappearance, the spirits noticed how the world had lost its colors, its flavors, it smells. Everything had begun to wither. They searched for Eden everywhere, but they couldn't find her. Then Thor turned to Loki. His piercing eyes saw the guilt in him, and he grabbed the poor trickster and twisted his arms until he admitted what he had done. He told the spirits that he had struck a deal with the eagle spirit Thiazzi to save his own life, but now he had put Eden in danger. All the spirits convened on the plains of eternity, and they decided that Loki had to do right by them all and bring Eden back. So Loki turned himself into a falcon, and he flew to Thrymheimr in the northern mountains, where Thiazzi lived. When he came within sight of Thiazzi's home, he saw that the eagle was out fishing and Eden was in the house. He landed on a windowsill and whispered to her, and she immediately recognized his voice and followed his instructions. Then Loki turned her into a nut, took her in his claws, and flew off. Soon after, Fiatsi returned to his house and saw that Eden was gone. His eyes searched the horizon and quickly noticed the falcon flying towards the spirit homes. He realized what had happened and spread his wings. When he took off, his wings drew so much air that it caused a storm all over the world, and the eagle quickly caught up to the falcon. But Loki dropped down between the trees and flew with great haste towards the walls of the spirit homes. 
as he came up over the treetops again, all the spirits were gathered on the plains of eternity and saw him coming towards the walls. They carried out large amounts of wood shavings and firewood, and then they torched it all and made a large bonfire. When the falcon flew over the walls, he immediately dropped down behind them. Thiazzi was right on his tail, but he was too large to try a similar manure, and he couldn't stop. So he flew right into the flames of the fire and burned. All the spirits rejoiced, but their happiness would soon give away to fear. Because when Thiazzi's daughter, Skadi, heard what had happened to her father, she donned her war gear, stepped up on her skis, and drove down the mountain toward the spirit homes. When she came to the walls, all the spirits knew that she was too great of a warrior to fight. So Loki struck a deal with her. She demanded Baldur as her husband in compensation for the loss of her father. Loki agreed but stipulated one condition. She could only choose her husband by looking at the feet of all the spirits lined up behind a curtain. So all the men in the spirit world stood with bare feet behind a curtain Asgadi made her choice. She saw a pair of beautiful feet and thought that this must be Baldur. So she uh, said, I picked the man with the prettiest feet. It turned out that this man was not Baldur at all. It was Njadr, the spirit of ships and seafaring. And Skadi turned to Loki and said, I did not get the man I wanted, so you must now do one more thing for me. You'll have to make me laugh again because I am so sorrowful for having lost my father. Loki pondered how he could do this. In the meantime, Odin tried to cheer her up by taking Thiazzi's eyes and throwing them into the sky where they became stars that you can still see today. While Skadi appreciated the gesture, she did not grow any happier. Then Loki came up with a plan to make her happy. He tied a rope to the beard of a certain goat, and then he tied the other end to his testicles. The goat began to pull in one direction and Loki pulled in the other. As she saw the bleeding goat and Loki in agony, Skadi began to chuckle. Soon her laughter roared across the world. Exhausted, Loki fell to his knees and Skadi picked him up and said that she, uh, he, cut. Exhausted, Loki fell to his knees and Skadi picked him up and said that he had upheld his end of the bargain. Then, Skadi and Yadr went to live at Noatun, the seafaring spirit's home by the ocean. But Skadi didn't enjoy it there. She couldn't sleep for the crashing sounds of the waves and the screeching of the seagulls. So they moved into Thrymheimer in the northern mountains. However, Njadr couldn't sleep in the mountains. The thunderous winds and the howling wolves kept him up all night. Eventually, they decided to live apart. Skadi lives in the mountains in Thrymheimer, and Njadr lives by the ocean in Noatun. Okay, wow, there's a lot to unpack in this story. After the last episode on ancestry, where I talked about land-based ancestry and how I find this way of thinking about ancestral ties more productive than one that is focused on bloodlines, Several of you listeners have reached out to me and asked if I could talk more about how we can connect to land. There's also a reasonable uh, number of those of you who descend from Europeans, but live outside of Europe, who asked me to offer some thoughts about living on stolen lands. 
Now I chose the story from Snorri Sturluson's Edda, which is commonly known as Thiazzi's Kidnapping of Idun, to use as a basis for discussing these subjects. And before I proceed with my thoughts on this, I'll need to make a bunch of disclaimers. The first disclaimer is this one. If you live in a European country and you're listening to this and thinking, oh, this doesn't really have anything to do with me because I live in my homeland and notions around stolen land only really have something to do with the invasion and colonization of other continents, I would encourage you to keep listening because that's actually very far from the reality of things. And I'll explain that later. Now, the second disclaimer goes like this. I actually really don't like the title of this story. Um, Thiazzi's kidnapping of Eden. Um, Snyder Sturluson really never gave this story a title when he wrote it down. And this story could just as well be called something like how Odin, Herinia, and Loki stole Thiazzi's food, or how the Aesir had to compensate Skadi, or how the Aesir killed Thiazzi, or something like that. The reason that modern scholars have chosen the, the title Thiazzi's Kidnapping of Idun is because that some scholars have argued that it has vague connotations to Hades' kidnapping of Persephone in the Greek-Roman story worlds. And there are aspects of this story that are reminiscent of especially Ovid's version of this story in Metamorphosis. However, it should be clear to anyone that the Nordic story is very different. Unlike the Greek-Roman story, which is concerned with themes like fertility of the fields, the Nordic story is concerned with food resources in a different way. And unlike the Greek-Roman story, there is really no trip to the underworld or anything like that. Um, what we see here is that these three creative spirits find food in, quote, the wild, unquote. And uh, uh, there are Elon's apples, there are also wild apples. There's also Edon being turned into a nut. And there's, of course, the situation where Thiazzi is out at sea, which I have interpreted as fishing. This is essentially food collecting in the form of hunting, pastoralism, foraging, and fishing. Pretty much every other way of obtaining sustenance than farming. What this means is that a central theme in this story is the use of land for resource collecting. Another central theme is how two groups of spirits integrate. The initial meeting revolves around theft, discord, betrayal, and coercion. Thiazzi kidnaps Edon. Edon is rescued and Thiazzi is killed. Skadi demands a mate. She doesn't get the one she wants, but ends up with a spirit that is intrinsically attached to the ocean, and the union between them does not allow them to fully um, integrate into one place. This is where a lot of scholars who have analyzed this story over the years will say that the union fails. Well, that's really an interpretation. We can't actually say that because all we're really told is that they eventually end up living apart. In fact, I'm not too thrilled with this interpretation that their union fails. And the reason for that is that there are numerous instances elsewhere in the Nordic story world where Njörder and Skadi are presented as a couple. There's also the moment in uh, stanza 11 in Grimnis Maulor, Grimnis speech, where Skadi is referred to as, quote, the shining bride of the gods, end quote. Now, this does not really sound like a failed union and failed integration to me. 
So if you pick up one of my favorite translations of the Poetic Edda, Caroline Larrington's version, and you read her note that, uh, on that stanza and see that it says uh, that Scotty and the other were divorced, basically referencing Snorri's story in the prose Edda, take that with a grain of salt. Anyway, the themes concerning sustenance, resource gathering and sharing, group integration and all of that stuff brings me to my third disclaimer. My disclaimer concerning the notion of stolen land. If you, like me, live on land that within the last 500 years has come to be populated by Europeans leaving Europe, and as a result is now under the management of a government that predominantly has taken form based on European models for state formation, you should, one, educate yourself about which populations lived there before that happened, two, Become knowledgeable about how that land you live on transferred from previous populations to its current state. And three, put effort into repairing any injustices that you may identify in those processes and their repercussions. And this is where a land acknowledgement is in order. I live in the state of Colorado. If you look at a map of the United States of America, you'll see that the political borders of Colorado are defined as a weird, sort of like rectangular shape, with no relations to the natural features of the land. The history of how Colorado came to be this weird rectangular shape on a map begins with Spanish conquistadors in 1540, who found a river that they chose to call El Rio Colorado. With that, they claimed most of the current state of Colorado as part of the Nuevo Mexico province. When the U.S. bought the French territorial claim that they called Louisiana in 1803, roughly the eastern half of this current weird rectangle, was included into the unorganized territories under U.S. management. In the meantime, Mexico revolted against the King of Spain and became independent in 1821. And Texas revolted against Mexico in 1835 to 6, roughly, and this led to the Mexican-American War in 1846, which then led to the Peace Treaty of 48 and the Mexican cession of most of the territories that are now the American Southwest. Some politicians in Washington drew a bunch of lines on a map and created the Nebraska and Kansas territories in the 1860s. And fast forward to 1876, where the U.S. President, Ulysses Grant, signed a proclamation that admitted Colorado into the Union. The peoples who were removed, massacred, or had their territories greatly diminished in size in order to implant Euro-descended settlers within the bounds of this weird rectangle that we call Colorado include the Ute, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Apache, and Comanche. The Apache, Comanche, and Ute have, as far as I am aware, inhabited these lands for the longest time. Whereas the Arapaho and Cheyenne were pushed over here from the region around the Great Lakes in the 17th to 19th centuries. And I recognize Colorado as the traditional lands of these peoples. There are several resources for those of us living in America that can inform us about the land grabs and the genocides on indigenous peoples here including colorado-survival.org, landback.org, nativeland.info, 
www.whose.land native-land.ca. There's also a good NPR article on the subject titled, quote, Which Indigenous Land Are You On? End quote, which interviews the creators behind the interactive map of indigenous lands in the Americas that you can find on native-land.ca. I put these links and a few others into the show notes for this episode so that you can go and look at them. Now, I want to emphasize that I'm not in any way an expert on U.S. history, the history of the Americas, or the history of global uh, colonization, nor am I a legal expert on treatises. So I'm going to refrain from commenting on the political and legal aspects of land theft, ceded versus unceded territories, contemporary land back movements, and settler exploitations of lands. Nor do I have any competence in assessing how this situation looks and feels from the perspective of indigenous populations, here or elsewhere, who live with the history and very real current problems that have their direct roots in the experience of suffering physical, cultural, and spiritual genocide as a result of land grabs over several centuries. What I will talk about here is how it may be possible to connect to land in a spiritual and community-oriented way. To set the proper tone for that in respect to the previous disclaimer about stolen land, I'll offer a quote from the eminent philosopher Vine Deloria Jr. of the Standing Rock Sioux, whose former teaching grounds at CU Boulder I actually now have the honor of walking on. In his book, God is Red from 1992, Deloria Jr. writes, quote, Western European peoples have never learned to consider the nature of the world discerned from a spatial point of view. And a singular difficulty faces peoples of Western European heritage in making a transition from thinking in terms of time to thinking in terms of space. The very essence of Western European identity involves the assumption that time proceeds in a linear fashion, end quote. To be fair, I would say that Deloria is only partially right. Europeans did once think in primarily spatial rather than temporal terms. But if you listen to the previous episode of this podcast on ancestry, you'll perhaps notice that as I unpacked the story about descent from Troy, spatial thinking had begun eroding in European cultures already 2,000 years ago when the Roman Caesars began thinking of themselves as refugees of the Trojan War spatially removed from their location of origin, temporally descended from the elsewhere. Eventually, spatial thinking became supplanted by temporal thinking in European philosophy. If you were ever in doubt, just read Hegel's Phenomenology of the Spirit, where this 19th century philosopher argues that history is the fulfillment of the spirit, the epitome of Eurotemporal thinking. So, Deloria is right about us when it comes to the present. Our cultures predominantly think in temporal terms, and that is a problem. In the episode on ancestry, I also believe I made a good case for how temporal thinking has influenced ideas about ancestry and shifted the perspective from land-based ancestral relations to bloodline ancestral fixations in European and Eurodescended populations. Temporal thinking 
as is the case with the notion of descending from the elsewhere, removes us from the here and now, our current location, in a mental sense. What does that mean for the notion of living on stolen land? Well, in a sense, in a spiritual sense, so to speak, it means that everyone who is thinking of their existence as temporal instead of spatial um, is living on stolen land, a land that they um, don't have a direct and proper connection to. I'll use Scandinavia as an example of how that works. Today, most Scandinavians will probably claim that there is full consistency between the people, culture, language, and territory of each of the modern states known as Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, and Finland. People assume that the identity known as, for instance, Swedish, belongs within the bounds of the territory that is now delimited as the country Sweden, and Swedish identity is recognizable in the language, a bunch of cultural codes, foods, dresses, and so on. Most people may also assume that this is a historical thing and that there has probably always been such consistency presence, present in Sweden or any of these other nation states. I'll say it plainly, that's a fantasy. If we break down the language, we find that there is and always has been a multitude of dialects and socialects in Scandinavia. Socialects are ways of speaking that are particular to a social subgroup in society. If we break down identities, we find that throughout Scandinavia, there is a multitude of local identities, even in a small country like Denmark or Iceland. Yeah, Icelanders may all agree that they're Icelanders, but ask anyone from the West Fjords, and they're likely to say that being from the West Fjords is something special to them and different from being from other parts of Iceland. When we examine the political borders of these Nordic countries, we find that they've shifted immensely over time, regardless of pre-existing identities. We find that there are regional and local identities. We find that those regional and local identities could, if history had gone in different directions, all really have been part of another modern country altogether. Germans in Northern Germany could have been Danes or Swedes. Swedes in Southern Sweden could have been Danes. Swedes in Western Sweden could have been Norwegians. Finland could have still been Swedish and Norway could have still been Danish and so on. And then there are of course the Sami who have been systematically undermined, colonized and managed by Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. Land across Scandinavia has been stolen, claimed, reclaimed, transferred, voted on for, you know, millennia even. And nobody really remember the ancient tribal identities that gave name to such locations as Jamtland, Skåne, Hortaland, Jutland, Jötaland, Hårlokaland, Angeln, Ingria, and Karelia. And just like these ancient tribal identities have disappeared, so have our connections to land, especially as droves of people moved from rural areas to cities in the 19th and 20th centuries. In fact, the truth about the current political borders across the European continent is that in most cases, they're not even as old as the founding of the American Republic. The truth about the European continent is also that most locations there have been cleared of previous populations to make way for others. Between roughly 1400 and 1600, new laws in Western Europe banned so-called loitering on common lands. 
that might sound like these bands simply gave squatters the bum rush or something like that. But in reality, what actually happened was that entire communities of people who lived like pastoralists in places that had previously been considered common lands were expelled and became transients. The punishments for trespassing on the common lands, according to the, these laws, included whipping for the f a first-time offender, cutting off of ears and, and or nose for second-time offenders, and execution for third-time offenders. When the fens and marshes were drained in the 1700s in England, Denmark, the Netherlands, northern Germany, and a couple of places in France and Belgium and elsewhere, the result was that people who used to live in those places were expelled too. When the Prussian kingdom in the 1800s decided that the peasantry couldn't forage, pick wood, and gather other useful resources in the woods, a basic land resources uh, was forcibly taken away from a large portion of the population. And then there are the hundreds, if not thousands, of replacements of different ethnicities on various lands across Europe for political reasons, reasons that pertain to resources, or simply because some king or duke or whatever they called themselves didn't want a certain population in a certain place. There's also, of course, the movements of populations because borders were shifting. Now, these are all examples of land grabs, forcible removals, and stolen land in Europe. And this brings me back to buying Deloria. So, what Deloria says elsewhere in God is read is, quote, human societies come and go on this earth, end quote. I don't want to trivialize the purpose and meaningfulness of righting historical wrongs that lies at the heart of indigenous land back movements. But what stands to reason from the Nordic and European examples, as well as the quote from Deloria, is that although the presence of generations of your descendants outside Europe is the result of invasions, colonization, and genocide, it is not a historical abnormality. It's not an injustice in and of itself that current populations on a certain piece of land are not the same as the ones who were there before. And it's not an abnormality that humans from one part of the world come to occupy another part of the world. We're seeing such movements today with mass migrations from different continents into, for instance, the European continent. So injustices lie not in the land itself, but with the people who walk, talk and act on it. Injustices between humans who come and go on a piece of land do not define how you as an individual may relate to that land. Injustices are, however, a result of seeing yourself as detached from the land and from the people who walked there before you. They're the result of the temporal thinking that Deloria describes. They're the result of existing in a modern world that at every turn seeks to detach us from relations and describe us as individuals whose primary task it is to strive for perfection, to live up to the image of an anthropomorphic spirit that judges us when our temporality comes to an end. They're the result of feeling alienated from the world and other humans. I'll have to quote the Yoruba philosopher Bayo Akomolafe to illuminate this. In his essay, Coming Down to Earth, Akomolafe describes his concept of fugitivity a state of being removed from land and ecology. He says the following, quote, 
The legacies of extractive capitalism, white supremacy, chattel slavery, racism, imperialism, ecocide, and apartheid are inextricably entangled with the rational order left in the wake of a theology of separation. End quote. Feeling separated from our world has allowed us to create oppressive, inhuman systems and do immense damage to the world and our fellow beings. Rationalism, a mindset that essentially believes that everything can be weighed, counted, and divided into measurable increments, has disenchanted our world and left us with the notion that temporality is the only meaningful mode of existence. It's a bureaucratizing of life that instills a basic anxiety in us. As I weigh this object, measure the length of that distance, count the number of these things, I realize that I myself can be weighed and measured, and that my existence can be counted in numbers of years. If I can count my existence in numbers, I can also count the existence of my community in numbers. If I and my community can be rationalized in numbers, then we can also be compared to someone else in their community. If we can count and measure things, we can also surmise that higher quantities of most things are better. Therefore, if I can claim that my country is older than your country, I win. If I can claim that me and my bloodline has existed on this spot longer than you and yours, I win. If I have more money than you, I win. And if I have more land than you, I win. Quality is subordinate to quantity. And this is the scourge of our modern age. Nations and the notion of stable territories are the result of the modern age. And because the modern age revels in quantifying everything, the land and your tenure on it is also quantified, using temporality as the primary metric. And this is the core of the theology of separation. Akumalave continues, quote, Modernity, still traumatized by the loss of the sacred, is a theology of scarcity. It is the metaphysics of the exiled anthropomorphic God whose regime of indulgences the Enlightenment outlawed, end quote. So the theology of separation and scarcity is what leads us to compete over resources and over land. It brings us to view populations that in one way or other can be categorized as different from us as competitors to our existence. As we see ourselves as distanced from the land because we're distant from an assumed place of origin, a location that doesn't exist in space but in time, because of our temporal thinking, we become anxious and neurotic about our ownership and we begin to hoard things. It's the natural response to feeling loss, a search for attachment that manifests in the hoarding of things, consumer goods, food, land, and drives a competitive nature out of fear of ever losing what we've gained once more. And this brings me back to the story about Thiazzi. When we're unpacking this story, we should begin with asking ourselves how it is that the three creative spirits, Odin, Hainia, and Loki, find themselves wandering in an unknown place. 
After all, according to the creation stories, the three creators are responsible for making our world. How can they then find themselves surprised by an eagle in the mountains? Well, this is where we need to realize that no culture on the planet, which formed its philosophy around the land it walked on, not a presumptuous idea about being superior, ever really believed that their creation story applied to all parts of the world. I'll make a future episode about the Nordic creation stories, but for now it suffices to say that when the sons of Bor lifted the world out of the ocean, they really only lifted the part that the old storytellers lived on. Just like Izanami and Izanagi only really created Japan, or Bumba really only created the region around the Congo River where the Bushongo live. And this is important to keep in mind because it means that there is room for discovery and new realizations in philosophies that do not subscribe to the idea that an exiled anthropomorphic god created everything and is therefore all-knowing. When you subscribe to that idea, it means that everything you see needs to fit into the framework that was revealed to you by that god in exile, usually through the words of a prophet who essentially never knew any better than the next person. So spirits can create and discover at the same time. They can explore and they can encounter beings that challenge them, just like us. It's a reminder to never think too much of yourself because one day you will fall. And when that day comes, it's better to hold a bit of humility in your heart so that you can laugh it off while the bruises heal. Anyway, the three creator spirits enter this valley that they've never seen before, and they assume that the animals living there are just free game. This is trespassing. They fail to investigate if this region is inhabited by anyone. They fail to abide by the first rule that Orthin mentions in Halvamal, or the speech of the High One. Quote, Before advancing through all doorways, one must look around, one must peer around, for one never knows for certain where enemies are sitting on the boards. End quote. When they do realize that the area is inhabited, they are obliged to share with the existing inhabitant. Now, as a penalty for their failure to pay due respect to this inhabitant, they lose all the good parts of the animal that they were going to eat. This is because, regardless of how you look at land, it is a source of food. If you enter a new world and find that you're taking food out of the mouths of those who live there, you should share. And if you took too much, if you took without asking, you should share even more. Loki essentially commits the colonizer's transgression. He's arrogant about his right to take things. He lashes out in violence when he realizes that entering a new community comes with the price of being treated like an outsider. Before you're integrated, the burden is on you to prove that you're worth the trouble. And so he gets punished. To save his life, he has to give even more. Not only does he have to provide the eagle with more resources, he also has to demonstrate his loyalty to the eagle by tricking his other community. Loki, the trickster, finds himself stuck between two communities, two places, as is common for a trickster. Now, the lesson 
to the quantifying modernist who sees everything as temporality and all relations as competition, maybe that in-groups and out-groups will always fight, competition is everywhere, and integration is never possible. That's just some social Darwinist nonsense. The lesson to an animist should be that if proper rules of engagement, those that create the foundation for relation building, had been followed in the first place, this would never have happened. Tricksters don't exist so that we can just use them as scapegoats. They exist so that we can know good actions from bad actions, functional existence from dysfunctional existence. Now, once Eden disappears from the community of the first spirits, dysfunctional existence sets in. Things stop working. Loki finds himself in trouble again. And this time, he'll have to demonstrate his loyalty to his first community and bring Edon back. And he does that, but this comes with another price, the death of Fiatsi, and then his daughter's revenge. Fiatsi's daughter, Skadi, poses a powerful threat to the community of the first spirits. And this is implied in the fact that there is no real standoff, no further violence, just negotiation. That's because the first spirits understand that it is time to atone for their violations. And how do they atone? They give Fiatsi a place in the sky, and with that, a central role in the Nordic story world. That's a form of integration. They also give Skadi a mate. That's also integration. And Loki is punished for his role in creating all this mess, the discord between communities. This punishment is one that threatens his sexual capacities, his fertility. Tying a man's genitals to a goat is actually an old Scandinavian method of punishment for infidelity. And Loki's infidelity is encompassing. He betrayed rules of engagement, he betrayed his first community, and he betrayed his second community. Ultimately, the meeting between the first spirits and the mountain spirits, Skadi and the eagle, becomes productive. Skadi and Njordr join in a union. The spirit of the mountains and the spirit of the ocean mate. They may have divided their habitation because the nature of their existence makes them quite different, but they're nonetheless integrated in a community. A community that now includes both mountains and oceans. I would argue that the union between Njordr and Skadi is successful based on the poem Fyrr Skidnis, or Skidnis' Journey in the Poetic Edda. Here, Skadi and Njordr are cast as worried parents to Freyr, who has fallen for a spirit that represents arable, cultivated lands. Her name is Gerdr. Skadi directs the servant Skidni to go investigate what is going on with Freyr as he's moping in his chamber. Things evolve, and eventually Skirtni travels together and makes her join in union with Freyr. There's a lot to say about this story. It should especially be mentioned that this is a situation where Gather is coerced and doesn't actually agree to meet Freyr out of free will, but that is a matter for a different episode. What we should understand from this whole situation is that the son of Skadi and Njadr is in charge of the fertility of arable lands. The spirit of the mountains and the spirit of the oceans engendered a son so powerful that he could command the fertility of the fields. That's what came of this debacle where the trickster 
failed to follow proper rules of engagement when he encountered the eagle. And this means that good things can come from terrible failures. What this means for our ability to connect with land, even land that has seen so much suffering, is that we can rectify the wrongs that have been committed on them. We can engage with the land without feeling or being alien to it. And this is where we can learn something from the Tewa philosopher, Gregory Cajete. In his book, Native Science, he writes, quote, The meaning of the Lakota aphorism, Mitakuye o Yasin, we are all related, is shared by all indigenous people. Its shared meaning stems from the fact that it is a guiding principle for the spiritual ecology held by every tribe in its perception of nature. Guided by this metaphysical principle, people understood that all entities of nature, plants, animals, stones, trees, mountains, rivers, lakes, and a host of other living entities embodied relationships that must be honored. Through the seeking, making, sharing, and celebrating of these natural relationships, they came to perceive themselves as living in a sea of relationships. In contrast to the relatively one-dimensional Newtonian Cartesian view of nature, native people perceived multiple realities of which the reality experienced by our five senses was only one of many possibilities. In such a perceived multiverse, knowledge could be received directly from living and non-living entities." End quote. You may have noticed that I've used several quotes from quite prominent indigenous thinkers in this episode. And this is not because I want to appropriate indigenous thinking and use it for justifying the last 500 years of colonial subjugation of the lands I live on. To the contrary, both Dolores, God is Red, and Cajeta's native science have come to me as gifts from Shoshone and Yavapai Apache friends. I consider these and a host of other books written by indigenous philosophers some of the most groundbreaking examples of contemporary philosophy, succinctly describing and analyzing what has gone wrong in the perspective on our existence in the world in European-derived philosophy. Moreover, I believe I would be failing to understand my own place in the world if I entered a country populated by communities who have cultivated close relationships to the land and disregarded their thinking. I'm following another one of Odin's rules of engagement expressed in Halvamal. Quote, Know that if you have a friend, you must mingle your mind with his and exchange gifts. End quote. That rule also applies to land. Okay, so what should be gathered from Cajetis? Quote, well, first and foremost, we should realize that the Newtonian Cartesian view of nature belongs to that temporal thinking that Deloria described. It's that way of thinking that places arbitrary borders on a map based on more or less invented historical, that would be temporal, processes. Compared to temporal relationships, embodied and placed relationships to land are much more valuable. Embodied and emplaced land relationship, as Cajete says, is multidimensional and opens your perception of reality in a way that can hardly be expressed in words alone. 
when you perceive yourself as an entity existing in a sea of relationships with plants, animals, stones, trees, mountains, rivers, lakes, and a host of other living entities, you are never alone. You are never walking through a blank space. There'll never be a location where there is, as some say, nothing. The closest thing you actually get to nothing is the urban hellscape, the office, the bar, the club, the restaurant, the stadium, the mall, the outlet store, the theater, the cinema, the Apple store. All those places that people nowadays flock to because they think it fills their lives with meaning. The reason these places have nothing is that any spirit that was ever there has been broken by asphalt and steel, silenced by the chatter of humans with little awareness. Maybe at times, the spirits of these places have the power to permeate the pavement or come through the cracks of the concrete. But as we learned in the last episode, when they do, they're usually ghosts. There are some places, I guess, that urbanites consider natural, which also have nothing. That would be farmlands, pens, and plantations where we grow one crop, a crop that's drenched in glyphosate, and we raise one type of animal that's usually pumped full of antibiotics. Those places are full of nothing too. At best, they're populated by broken and abused spirits, just like the cities. Connecting to land requires what Cajete points to as the foundation for the sea of relationships. You must seek, make, share, and celebrate natural relationships. The question is, of course, how do you do that? Now, before I begin talking about how uh, you do this, I'll need to share a story about a book I published some years ago. This story will illuminate how I talk about seeking, making, sharing, and celebrating. Some years ago, a publisher reached out to me and asked if I was interested in publishing a book about Ausatru, the modern religious expression of the belief in the Nordic gods. I said yes and wrote Ausatru for beginners. What I've later found is that although this book has been largely positively received, at least by those who have posted about it online, many readers come back to one single criticism. I don't talk about how to do things. I don't really talk about how to do rituals, connect with the spirits and all of that stuff. I don't offer any descriptions of rituals. I don't tell you what you need to know to do this, this, and this, to do a proper blot or sumble and so on. And there's a simple reason for that. I can't. I can't tell a stranger how I connect with spirits around me. That's because that stranger doesn't know me. They don't know who I am, what I've experienced, how I experience the world, and most importantly, you can't offer satisfying written descriptions of significant and intimate embodied and emplaced actions. Those actions come with and unfold in communion with the place and those people who are present with you. I think a lot of us have come to expect that there is a recipe for how to do things, a recipe for how to do certain rituals right and properly, which can then be taught by someone who is considered more knowledgeable or higher in rank or something like that, a guru or whatever. And that's not how I see things. Pre-Christian uh, European religions or paganism, whatever you would like to call them, 
were generally non-dogmatic, meaning basically that there were no texts that prescribed exactly how ritual and ceremony should be performed. Sure, there were knowledge keepers who taught novices how to do things their way, but insofar that there were no fixed rules for how to do things, rituals became dynamic. The core of them would perhaps stay relatively steady over time, but it was possible to add and subtract when needed. Rituals took form around a set of concepts that prescribed relationship to physical things in our world through logical association. This is how a non-dogmatic community religion functions. They've grown from a cultural setting in which the members of that culture recognized the sacrality of the biological functions in the world. Now, this biosacral approach to the world means that the things non-dogmatic community religions focus on are the components of our existence that create and enhance life. From the biosacral approach to the world, it also follows that you as a human being are inherently capable of connecting to spirit simply by existing. It is in your body. It is a basic ability that we all have. It's therefore not necessary for me to describe rituals and ritual acts so that you can copy them. All you really need is a functional story world that can put existence into spiritual context, and then you're good to go. So instead of offering recipes for how to connect with land, I'll describe instances where I have experienced or cultivated a connection. I want to preface these descriptions with a note on my temporal self. Now, my temporal self is the memory and knowledge of where I've been and what I come from. My historical ancestry, that would be generations that I can identify, is primarily Danish, but includes dashes of Czech and Finnmark Sami. I've lived in different lands over the years. I've lived in Greenland, Iceland, and Denmark. The memory of these places has informed me about how I connect to land today. When I moved from Greenland to Denmark as a 12-year-old, one thing I remember vividly was how much I missed snow, how much I missed rocks, mountains, cliffs, and how depressing I thought green lawns were. A decade and a half later, I found myself in Iceland, noticing just how much the subarctic mountains around Reykjavik, the bitter November cold, and the general absence of deciduous trees appealed to me. In terms of nature, Iceland is actually a curious halfway point between Denmark and Greenland. You get the rocky mountains, icy, arctic, but then you find a spot of green grass, a bush, a tree, fields, pastures, and such, which to my eye look more like Denmark than anything else. Greenland has a little bit of that down south in Guyata, but the environment is otherwise straight up Arctic, and if you ask me, a veritable paradise. Anyway, I've never felt comfortable in Denmark's rolling hills or on its sandy beaches. So as soon as I moved uh, there, I felt a longing for mountains, ice, and snow. That's why when I landed in Denver in 2015 and found myself staring at the snow-capped Rockies in the horizon every morning when I got on the light rail to go to work, I knew I needed to go live there. So eventually I did. 
And since I moved into the mountains, I've spent considerable time cultivating a relationship to the ones that are nearest to me. Now, those settlers that ousted the indigenous populations from these lands and drew meaningless political lines disconnected from the land across a map, of course, gave the mountains names based on their temporal understanding of their existence. They named them after their heroes, notorieties, and at times after the peoples they kicked off the land. Histories, atrocities, and some kind of cruel irony scribbled across a landscape that otherwise has profound meaning. Time carved in space. Little thought given to the quality and meaning of any of those wonderful individuals or mountains. To me, the mountains around me gain a name from the role they play in my life. There's Hreisvershurt, the hall of the eagle that sends the winds over our world. There's Svatnir, the sleeping giant who occasionally awakens to send lightning in the valley. There's Öxnaskarth, the mountain that forms a pass for a giant boulder that looks like an ox. This, of course, has relations to Ödhumbla from the creation story to me. And then there's Ausheimar, the tallest peak where all the spirits convene, and so on. These peaks have shown me their being through their presence in my universe, and that's how I found a name for them. That's a key component of connecting to land. This is a way of seeking and making natural relationships. And with this description, I have now shared these natural relationships as well. I'll also share with you an example of celebrating a natural relationship with the land. In my perspective, a perspective I describe as animist, there is no fixed pantheon, essentially like a number of known spirits that will always stay the same. To the contrary, if you're a heathen, Norse pagan, also true, or whatever you feel like calling it, or just a history and mythology buff, you may be familiar with the commonly known spirits mentioned in the Old Norse sources like Odin, Freyr, Thor, Freya, Loki, Tyr, Frigg, Idun, Skadi, Baldr, and so on. But did you know that if you examined all sources, written and material, from the part of the northern European realm that has been inhabited by Germanic-speaking peoples for the last 2,000 years, you would be able to identify no less than 800 spirits, 800 plus spirits that have been venerated or have played some kind of role in story worlds of these Northern Europeans. Adding to that number, there are also the spirits like the Egyptian Isis, the Persian Mithras, the Assyrian Elagabalus, who were introduced into Central Western Europe with the Roman imperial expansion. Aside from these, there are, of course, the Sami and Finnish spirits, several Slavic spirits, and all the forgotten ones who've been recognized by humans passing through the northern lands. The point is that we humans have always recognized spirits in our world, and when that has happened, they've been named. They've received a place in the story worlds and also a place in our rituals and ceremonies. Our so-called pantheons are dynamic, never static. To be quite frank, the entire idea of having a pantheon is rubbish. It was Herodotus who came up with this 
idea back in ancient Greece. He wanted a stern, patriarchal sky father to match his self-deprecating groveling for his rulers. And there you go, a grumpy Zeus on top of a mountain, Mount Olympus, father of the gods. Those who move instead of just sitting in a place, they see and feel and hear and experience more, and they're more likely to also make new discoveries, like Odin, Heinia, and Loki. That's the difference between those men who got busts made of themselves while they were lounging in their villas and the rest of us. So when you move through the world and make new discoveries, it is likely that you also find new spirits. And that's what happened to me one day. I was visiting a friend at the Wind River Reservation and I went to the cemetery in Fort Washakie. This is where Sakajawea is buried. She was a Shoshone woman who in 1804 joined the Lewis and Clark expedition that crossed the Rockies and reached the western coast of this continent. From the descriptions of her in Clark's notes, she was apparently an excellent peacemaker. Now, after she died, the stories about her circulated with many peoples in the West, and she also became a symbol for the suffragette movement in America. In 1963, a statue was erected uh, in her honor on the cemetery in Fort Washakie, and people go there and leave gifts for her. And I did that too. Now, I'm not going to be naive about the romanticizing stories about her. I know that she's found herself locked in similar white settler narratives as Pocahontas and other indigenous women uh, as the centuries have passed. I also know that these narratives are instruments for settler societies to justify the injustices that they have been and are responsible for on this continent. However, I recognize the spirit of the land when I see one. And for that reason, I consider her a spirit of this region, a spirit and guardian of the West. So when I pass through Wind River, I will stop at Fort Washakie and give her a gift. Now, as a final disclaimer, I want to emphasize that these are personal practices that have evolved over years through my communication with the land I live on. I'm in every sense of the word an immigrant here. I'm a settler. I don't pretend that my presence here doesn't have implications relating to the long history of colonization and undermining of indigenous peoples on these lands. And for that reason, I think it's also important to stress that I strongly oppose appropriation of indigenous sacralities in all their forms. Appropriation is the practice of taking art, culture, spirituality, and commodifying it, using it for personal gains, and most importantly, excluding indigenous peoples from any gains from this usage. When it comes to appropriation of indigenous sacrality and spirituality, white Americans, and Westerners in general are especially guilty of romanticizing and subsequently using indigenous peoples. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch Dancer with Wolves and Google Coachella or Burning Man or something. Now, for these reasons, I'm perfectly aware that if you're an indigenous person listening to this, you may have a hard time trusting if my thoughts and practices are in any way genuine. And as a white person, there's really nothing I can say that I believe will instill trust in that matter. Only actions can really prove that. 
Now, I'll share these thoughts and descriptions of practices to inspire land connectedness in a way that will ultimately shift our perspective away from an exploitative relationship and towards one that is based in respect, I hope. Now, only time will really tell if that is actually something that can be achieved. And with this, I'll return to the story about Thiazzi, the eagle, one last time. The story describes a process where rules of engagement were broken, deceitful actions were committed, but peace was restored through atonement and integration. You can draw your own conclusions about why that seafarer and the mountain skier could not find a place suitable for their cohabitation. I personally don't put too much weight on that because to me it's not indicative of their commitment to their union and community. Especially not because the result of their union is that powerful spirit that commands fertility of the lands. To me that seems like a very successful outcome. The conclusion that should be drawn from this story is that you should never walk on any land with arrogance, disregard for its beings, humans and non-humans, and you should never assume that you just have the right to be there without paying your dues. As a human, you're given to the winds, subject to the weather, a fellow to the creatures, second to the waters, and a beggar to anything edible on your path. Nature is unconquerable, and we're at best lords of imaginary kingdoms. Thank you for listening.